Well, good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. That is becoming one of my favorite songs. I, I catch myself singing it while I'm driving around in the car right now. I'm just really enjoying that, that it's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of this year. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor, and it's so good to have you guys here. Man, if this is your first time, let me just say welcome. We're so happy that you're here today. I, I Like Mikey said, you know, this is, just a, this is a place for you. This is... Uh, this is a family, and so I hope that when you came in here today that you felt like you were walking into somebody's home who invited you over, who was warm and welcoming you in. That, that's, that's who we are at the Gathering Church, and so welcome. We're glad you're here. So today, uh, we're continuing this series, My Big Fat Mouth, but first, I want to acknowledge that our mission team of 10 people from our church are in Guatemala right now. Uh, they've been there all week. My wife is among them, and uh, man, they have had an incredible trip. They, they just finished up Bible school, yesterday vacation Bible school. They had a ton of kids show up, a lot of kids who don't normally have the opportunity to spend time together, and so they're bringing this community together in that way and showing them what the gospel of Jesus looks like. And so it's been a great week. There's been some exciting stories and some new opportunities. And so can't wait to share more about that with you when they, when they get back. I can't wait for my wife to get home. I'm telling you, it's, I miss her. And so, uh, but our prayers are with them today. They're starting their traveling. Uh, they've got a long ways to travel to get home. They'll be home on Tuesday. And so our prayers are with them. We're thinking about them and, and we're excited to hear more when they get back. Um, so last week, we did our forward offering. Um, if you haven't been here, if, if, this, if you're new to our church, we're moving from West Asheville, from here in, in Rainbow Community School, to T.C. Robertson High School. Uh, T.C. Robertson is going to give us more opportunity to impact more people. It's going to create more seats, more parking spots, bigger classrooms for our kids. And we're so excited about what God's going to do through this move. But we, we did this offering because we're going to need to do a lot to get there, to get to that place. And so I'm happy to tell you today that yesterday, or last Sunday, in one day, we raised $57,000 for the Gathering Church, man. You guys are so generous, uh, and we're so humbled and grateful, and we just are so excited to see how God multiplies this out and returns it to people. And, uh, and we get to see more hope given to more people, more lives changed in our city as we move into the next chapter. So thank you so much for sacrificing and giving to that. Uh, so last week, Robbie opened up our series by preaching on complaining. Uh, and honestly, it was, no, I was going to make a joke about complaining, but I can't because it was a good message. Robbie um, challenged me. It was something I needed to hear, and I've been processing through it this week. And so this week, today, we are going to be talking about criticizing. Criticizing. Sometimes my big fat mouth gets me in trouble for criticizing. Uh, I was a freshman at Charleston Southern University. In fact, I was only ever a freshman at Charleston Southern University. Uh, turns out if you don't go to class or take the tests, you can't keep going to college. And so uh, I was there for one brief period of time for the course of a year, and I took one class because it seemed really easy called Youth Ministry 101. This was a Christian college. I was, uh, my degree, my, my math, like it even mattered, but my major was in psychology, but I had to take some electives and this looked like it would be the easiest there was because I had been in a youth group and I knew for a fact this class would mostly be about playing games. This, this class was mostly going to be about messy games and how to give 
youth students salmonella. That's basically what we would be learning. In fact, when I got in this class, I discovered it was very hard, and our professor was one of the heads of the religion department and took this very seriously, something I was not prepared for. And so I had a lot of critical things to say about this class, and if I'm being honest, I had a lot of critical things to say about Dr. Sharp. I, I think he's a great guy, and, he's, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's influencing thousands now, but as an 18-year-old, I couldn't see that. As an 18-year-old, I didn't enjoy it. And so one day I was walking out of class and was walking like through the building towards the door with my buddy, just, just breaking down the whole thing, talking about how silly the class was, how unnecessary it was, why are we doing this? And then I got to the, the professor and I said, the professor is, you know what? He's just a beady-eyed little angry man who thinks he's way more important than he is. And as I'm going through the door, I notice someone's behind me, so I hold the door, and I turn around and look the professor directly in the eyes. And he looked at me and said, oh, thank you, John Mark. It's good to know how you really feel. I dropped the class that day. I could not look him in the eyes again. I was in the Coast Guard, and, uh, and I was up on the bridge doing part of my job uh, was to navigate this ship. I don't know whose idea it was to let me navigate this ship. I get lost driving to Ingalls, but I was navigating this ship, and uh, I worked for an operations boss named Mr. Devlin. Mr. Devlin. And uh, he was a hard man to work for if you were as irresponsible as I was. So one day I was standing with my back to the stairs up on the bridge talking to the other guys and we were the ops boss came up and they were talking about ops. And I said, huh, Mr. Devlin, more like Mr. Devil, am I right? And then he came up the stairs and said, John Mark, I'd like to see you in my office. And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, my big fat mouth gets me in trouble for criticizing. Man, so many of us are guilty of this. Maybe not as embarrassing as I am, but so many of us criticize others. It's so easy to get caught up in or jump in along with others while they're criticizing somebody or something. It's easy to step in and offer your two cents to the situation. We do it for so many reasons. We feel justified in criticizing somebody because we know a better way, and they should too. We criticize because we're insecure about us, and we want to make ourselves look better. And so we want to seem smarter, so we, we criticize people. We criticize things that challenge us or things that we don't understand because they challenge us. But what if, what if your critical words are destroying the intimacy in your marriage? What if your critical words are driving a wedge between you and your kids? What if your critical words are keeping you from experiencing the joy of life lived in your purpose? Or what if your critical words are keeping you from sharing the gospel because instead of showing a spirit of hope to people who need it, you're showing a spirit of criticism? Let's take inventory this morning and ask what our critical words are doing to those around us and in our lives. Proverbs 12, 18 says, Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. See, there's, there's two ways that we can use our words. We underestimate how powerful these things are, these simple little words that we use. But our words have the power and the ability to bring life and healing and joy and hope and peace to the people around us, or they have the power to cut and to wound and to hurt and to break down. 
And oftentimes we, we feel that we're not that critical, that maybe we point out a few things here and there and we excuse all these things in our mind. But the reality is that one critical word can stick to somebody's soul for a lifetime. And so I'd like for us to take inventory this morning and ask, our question, ask ourselves this question. Am I a fault finder? Am I a fault finder? Fault finders look for what is wrong. That seems obvious because it's a fault finder and they find faults, I know. But fault finders look for what is wrong instead of what is right. Maybe you're single and dating. When you go out on a date with somebody, is the first thing you do in that moment with that person try to figure out what's wrong with them? Try to point out every personality flaw, every flaw in their taste, every character flaw, every physical flaw with that person before you find out who they really are? Or maybe you're married, and this one is loaded. Married people, are you focusing more on what your spouse is doing right or on what they are doing wrong? Last night, did you thank them for doing the dishes or did you get mad at them for not folding the laundry? Did you thank them for folding the laundry or did you get mad at them for not folding it the way you would have folded it? Did you thank them for the way they played with and led your kids that day? Or did you criticize the way they handled one situation at dinner? When they work on the house, do you admire their craftsmanship or do you criticize every flaw? What about on a deeper level? Do you build up who they are becoming or do you pick apart who they've been? You see, what a fault finder does is they look at all faults, past, future, and present. See, a fault finder has a hard time seeing the potential in somebody because the fault finder always remembers who that person was. The fault finder always remembers the offenses of yesterday. The fault finder can't see the promise of a future because the fault finder is stuck in the predicaments of their past. Are you a fault finder in your marriage? How about with coworkers? Do you criticize everything about their lives and their work, or do you speak life and build them up? Do you see their shortcomings and the things that frustrate you in your environment, or do you see their potential and the things that are, they are doing well? Are you moving these people towards the best version of themselves, or are you focused on the worst version? How about this one? When others are criticizing around you, do you step in? Or do you stand up for? How about with church? Do you give yourself over to worship the king of all creation? Or do you instead criticize the clothes of the worship leader? Not you, Robert. You looked great today. <laughs> do you focus on worshiping God? Or do you focus on whether or not your life is more put together than the person seated next to you? Or how about with yourself? See, for some of us, the person that we criticize the most is ourselves. We, we won't give ourselves a break. Every little thing that we do, no matter how much people try to build us up, we find all the things that are wrong and break it down. Do we find only faults? When we look for what is wrong first, we are choosing distance over intimacy. This way of thinking destroys intimacy. I believe intimacy as a whole is one of the chief things that our enemy is attacking right now. And we live in a, in a world that is both physical and spiritual. 
And in the spiritual world, we have an enemy. And our enemy is out to steal and kill and destroy and to wreck everything that is good in this world. And I believe that the chief among those things is intimacy. That's why divorce is on the rise and marriage is under attack. It's why porn is so pervasive. That's why it's so easy to find things wrong with somebody or something than it is to celebrate what is right. Because our enemy, the devil, wants to destroy our intimacy. Intimacy requires vulnerability, trust, and proximity. And you cannot develop any of those while you are pointing out only what is wrong. Second thing fault finders do is they see things from one perspective. Just one perspective. Here's the thing about criticism. It's hard to see in the mirror because we feel so justified in it. We we feel like we're not criticizing. We're just speaking the truth. We're just calling it out like it is. We're just pointing out what everybody else noticed. Somebody's got to say it. We justify this in our minds and don't think that we're finding faults. Don't think that we're being critical. And we wonder why people just won't live up to the standards that we've set for them. But there it is. See, we oftentimes only see things through our worldview, through our perspective. And we set standards for all the people around us, and and we're upset when the people around us don't rise up to these standards that we've set. Instead of trying to process how their mind works and, and what they're thinking and what standards they have and who they are as a person... Instead, we, we, we just hold them to who, how we see the world through our past hurts or our current prejudices. And we criticize who they are because they're not us. And when we do this, we build walls. Walls around us, walls between us. And it's another way to destroy our intimacy. And the third thing fault finders do is they create distance. They create distance. Oftentimes, People who are fault finders. See, I think that many of us are almost, I think that all of us are fault finders at one point or another. Whether it's in your marriage, I think a lot of times it shows up most common if you are married in your marriage. Because often we're the hardest on the people we're closest to. We have the highest standards for the people we're closest to. Too, and so it'll show up in your marriage, but maybe you're good at not doing this at work or with other family members or vice versa. A lot, most of us will find that one area of our lives, we are a fault finder. But for some of us in here today, we're a fault finder in every area. See, for some of us, we've given ourselves over to this spirit of criticism. Everything that we see, everyone that we meet, we find everything wrong before we even begin to think about what could be right. It's not even on our minds what could be right. Just finding faults everywhere we go. And what you find in the consistent fault finder is they have difficult times cultivating a meaningful relationship with anybody because their critical mindset is constantly creating distance between them and the people they have the opportunity to be in relationship with. We do this for so many reasons. Maybe you're a fault finder because The idea of really committing to something is scary. Maybe it's a hurt you've got in your past. You committed, you gave yourself over to something and then you were hurt. They let you down, it let you down. And now we walk around expecting everyone else that we see and everyone that we meet to let us down as well. And instead of trying to find hope, instead of trying to see what's good, we're just trying to see where the next person will let us down first. And it's created in us a critical spirit. 
Maybe instead of uh, going all in on something, we, we don't want to expose the vulnerability of ourselves because we're worried about what that might mean, how we might get hurt. We do this with church a lot. People do this with church all the time. Instead of going all in and leaning into the dream team and life groups and showing up on Sundays, instead of really letting people in and taking the opportunity to grow, we find every reason not to. Well, the life group topics, the books, they all seem real surfacey. I don't, I don't think I'll get anything out of it. What's the point of even going? Or, well, the dream team is really just waving at people and saying, hi, I don't really see how that could show me my purpose or feel like I'm making a difference. What, why would I, what's the point? Why would I try that? Or the music is just too loud, so I can't really engage in the worship. But if we never go to life group and we never get vulnerable, we will never experience the freedom that it genuinely offers. And if we never join the dream team or serve selflessly, then we'll never learn what it means to make a difference with the local church. And if we don't give ourselves over to worship, we could be missing out on the very presence of God. Here's my point. If any of these sound like you, there is a better way to live. Don't beat yourself up about it. We all suffer from a critical spirit from time to time. My big fat mouth can be really critical. When I was in my early 20s and in seminary, I was trying to find a church to worship at, and I probably went to a hundred different churches and criticized everything about every church that I sat in. There was always something wrong. There was always something to find. There was always something that rubbed me the wrong way. I could pick apart anybody, any song, any sermon. I just didn't, I didn't find anywhere that, that met the standards that I was setting for everyone around me. Until one day I realized that the problem wasn't those churches. No church is perfect. The problem was me, and it was the condition of my heart. See, we're all guilty of this at some point. James, the brother of Jesus, had a lot to say about our words and our words of criticism in James chapter 3. Uh, look with me at James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. He says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. This is James saying, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to talk about this, but we all deal with this. Everybody, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody stumbles sometimes. Nobody is perfect. And that's the last nice thing James is going to say. It's about to get real. He says, take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Whoa, James, that's extreme. Don't, listen, James is using extreme words because the tongue can be extremely damaging. He wants us to understand. He wants us to get it. Your words are powerful. You have no idea the power of your tongue. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is truth. Our words are powerful. They've got great power to build up 
and they've got great power to tear down. What we don't always realize is that one word of criticism has the power to stick to someone's soul for life. One word didn't mean anything to you. You didn't think anything of it. You were just speaking your truth. But for years, that person will try to wash away those words from their soul. Our words are so powerful. One thing so small as a word, one part of our body so small like our tongue has the ability to inflict so much damage. It can alienate us from our spouse. Criticism can do that. We, we get tired of being criticized, so we just shut down emotionally. We criticize so much that we stop seeing the things that we love about this person. We get disenchanted with the whole marriage itself. Criticism can alienate us from our kids. Instead of feeling like you are proud of them and love them no matter what, if all you speak to your children is criticism, they may begin to feel like they've got to earn your love through the accomplishments that you won't criticize. That will lead to an entire lifetime of them seeking performance-based affirmation from people. We just have no idea the power of our words. One little thing, so much power. Verse 9 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, but with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our words have the ability to kill our witness. So many people discount Christianity for this reason. I've sat down with a lot of people who are coming back to church. A lot of, a lot of us at the gathering are finding our way back into a relationship with the Father. And as I process through the hurts that drove us away in the first place, almost always it has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with His people and the words that they've used. And what we don't realize is that when we allow our words to criticize more than they build up, we are showing people who Jesus is. Our actions speak so much louder in the gospel. Our words to those around us speak so much louder in the gospel to the people that were watching us than sitting down and telling them who Jesus is. They're watching to make sure everything matches. Don't be a fault finder. Instead, Let's learn to do something else. See, Jesus showed us a different way. And throughout the Gospels, it paints this clear picture of two different ways that we can live as somebody in relationship with God. The first way was the Pharisees. The Pharisees are defined by criticism. They have a power built on criticizing those around them. You're not good enough. You need me to get there. Jesus was different. Jesus was different. Jesus dealt hope to every person that he encountered. Instead of criticism, he brought hope. Instead of telling them all the things they were doing wrong, he showed them the potential of their purpose. Over and over again, this is how Jesus lived. Can you imagine, when Jesus came, he encountered so many people living in a way that would only cause them and those around them pain. And since the beginning of time, God has shown us a better way to live. But people still didn't follow his laws 
and his teachings. Imagine how frustrating that must be. Ever have a, a friend who, who keeps making the exact same bad decisions no matter how many times you give them the advice that would set them free? You understand how this feels if you have children. I have a three-year-old, and she's brilliant and kind and smart and beautiful and wonderful, but she doesn't listen very well, okay? And uh, there, specifically, she's, she, gets, she licks her lips and gets really chapped lips, and I tell her, Eleanor, don't lick your lips so much and you won't get chapped lips. And this morning we woke up and I looked at her lips and they were as red as strawberries. I said, Eleanor, why are your lips so red? And she went, I don't know. It's so frustrating. As a parent, I know how you can free yourself from the way that you're living. I'm giving you everything that you need, but you're not listening. And so what I want to do, my natural reaction is to criticize and point out every fault and show them everything that's wrong and why they should have listened. And Jesus walks into the earth that he created with the people that he created, that he's shown a better way to live and none of them are doing what he's shown them to do. And all of them are broken and hurting and in need of help. And he doesn't criticize them. He doesn't show them all their faults. No, instead, Jesus would sit down with them, look them in the eyes, and speak hope and life to them. He dealt out hope of a better future for them. To a man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, a thief, a traitor to his people, Jesus went to his house for lunch and treated him like he mattered to him. To a Samaritan woman getting water when she expected to see nobody else at the well because of the shame she carried from her promiscuous lifestyle, Jesus said that he was the living water and that she could drink from it and have freedom from her life of sin. Jesus dealt out hope. Must be hope dealers. Hope dealers speak life. Hope dealers speak life. Your words are so powerful, but you can use them for good. Just like a word of criticism can damage us long term, one well, meaningful word of encouragement can stick to your soul forever. I was 13 years old. I was obnoxious. I was a mess. I was a middle school boy. No, no more explanation needed, right? It was just a real disaster for everybody. And I had this, this middle school pastor named Andy Wood. And Andy Wood always saw something in me that others didn't. And I remember we were on a youth trip, and we were on our way home from that youth trip, and uh, I was sitting next to my friend, and we were just, you know, drinking Mountain Dews and eating Doritos, whatever 13-year-old boys do. And Andy came and sat in the chair in front of me and leaned in and said, John Mark, have you thought about your future? And I said, "Uh, yeah, when I get home, I'm going to play PlayStation for a while, watch some movies, and pass out. That's the plan. And uh, and he said, no, no, no. I mean, like, what do you want to do, like, with your life? I'm 13 years old. I'm not thinking about this stuff. I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe I'll be an astronaut. You know, who knows? And uh, Andy leans in and he says, John Mark, I know you're not thinking about it right now, but I want you to know I see a, I see a calling of ministry on you. That when I look at you, I see a pastor that I think you're going to lead. I think you're going to lead people. I think you're going to speak life to people. I think, I think God's going to use you to do incredible things. And I walked away from that. I laughed at him. I did not... That was nowhere near where I wanted my life to go as a 13-year-old. I thought no, no kid like grows up dreaming they're going to be a pastor one day. It's not like what five-year-olds say when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't want it. But 18 years later, those words of encouragement stick to my soul when things get hard. I, 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 that meant so much to me. 
His words of life meant so much to me that when I gave my life to ministry and decided to serve God in ministry, I called up Andy Wood, who was a pastor in California, and said, Andy, I'm, here I am, man. You were right. Can you teach me everything I need to know about being a pastor? And he said, come on, man, let's do it. You just need to know your words are powerful, and they have the ability to stick to someone's soul forever. We have to learn how to use them well. Let's speak life to one another. Jesus spoke life, and he did it often. One time, he was having a conversation with his disciples about who he was, and he was starting to gain some, some notoriety in the villages and in the, in the region that he was in. Everyone knew who he was, and everyone was talking about Jesus. And so one time, he sits down with his disciples, and he says, who do you say I am? And they've all got just as crazy of answers as the people around him do and, and the villages do, but Peter speaks up. And this was normal for Peter to speak up. Peter was always speaking up. Peter was, his big fat mouth got him in trouble all the time. He was always just saying things that were ridiculous. Jesus was always like, Peter, go take a time out. Peter, take a break. Peter, think about what you're going to say. Peter was always doing these kinds of things. In fact, Jesus had the foreknowledge to know that Peter was going to betray him in the moment he needed him the most. That in the moment that Jesus needed Peter to be there for him, Peter was going to lie and say he never knew him. Jesus knew that about Peter. But Peter said, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus looked right at Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his given name. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus says, Peter, you need to know that in you I see a leader, that in you I see a, a rock, that Peter, I'm going to use you to build the movement that will change the world. See, Jesus could have pointed out all Peter's flaws. He could have said, if you're going to do that, you've got to overcome all this first. Jesus didn't do that. He looked at, at Peter, he saw his future, and he called it out of him. That's what it means to speak life into somebody. It's to look in, into who they are and call out the very best in them. To see in them what they don't yet see in themselves and to say it out loud. Give people honor with your words. You know the difference between respect and honor? Respect is earned. Honor is given because it was given to us. Give people honor with your words. Learn to speak life. It's contagious and it's unusual. People are not used to other people speaking life to them. But people are starving for it. So let's make it normal. Let's speak life to one another. Thanksgiving is this week. We're going to be around family. Hopefully you'll be around family and friends. And maybe that's always like warm and fuzzies for you. But for a lot of us, Thanksgiving is challenging. As you get around some people that you love with all your heart, but they frustrate the mess out of you. Because that's family sometimes, isn't it? And you're going to want to say things, and you're going to want to point things out. And you may cut into that bird, and it might be on, like on Christmas vacation, where it just goes, <laughs> opens up, it's as dry as it could be. And we're going to have a lot of things that we want to say, and we're going to have to make a choice. Are we going to find all the faults in this person, or are we going to speak life into them? Are we going to think about who they've been, what happened last Thanksgiving, or are we going to see the potential of their future and call it out? Let's say it out loud. Let's speak life to people. Hope dealers speak life. Hope dealers build up. They build up. Don't tear down people. Tear down the walls between you and them. Build people up with your words. I'm talking about encouragement. 
You're doing a great job. You are an inspiring mother. You are a consistent, faithful, present father. You are really giving cooking your best effort. <laughs> That's not a real <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> I've seen if you were listening. <laughs> this is so important. It's a mindset change. You can communicate the same thing in a way that either tears people down or builds them up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up. Hey, just like you're already doing. You see what he does there? He's showing us how to do it as he tells us to do it. Hey, encourage each other, build each other up. But you know what? You're doing a great job anyways. Proud of you. Keep doing that. See, I think we're born with, with two languages that we can speak. You can speak a language of criticism or a language of encouragement. And I think the language that we lean towards more often than not is a language of criticism. It's just easier. It's just easier to find faults than it is to find hope. It's just easier to find faults than it is to find who they could be. It's just easier to find faults than it is to find what they've done well. So, so many of us, we just speak this language of criticism. Maybe in your workplace, you guys rib each other and everybody thinks it's funny. Everybody laughs. One minute you criticize this guy, everybody laughs. Then they criticize this guy, everybody laughs. And you just jump right in. And we speak this language of criticism. But a language of criticism destroys intimacy. It breaks down the potential of the purpose that God places in the people you're criticizing. You could take it from them. You could reach in there and block it. Stop them from doing what God created them to do. Or we could delete that language from our memory and speak the language of God, the language of encouragement, the language that sees who they could be, that looks for purpose in every person that we encounter and just tries to figure out what we can say that will push them one step closer to it. What does it look like for us if we learn to encourage instead of criticize, if we encourage our family, our friends, our coworkers? What would it look like for us if we dealt hope instead of finding faults because the last thing is that hope dealers give hope 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 this is what people are looking for this is what people are in desperate need of this is what people are searching for hope and it's not just found in on a pulpit it's not just found in, in inspiring youtube videos it can be found by the person sitting next to them the person in their lives most perfectly positioned to give them hope who are you bringing hope to People don't need you to help them see their faults. They're well aware of them. What they need help with is seeing the hope of their future. Because the devil is a fault finder. The Pharisees were fault finders, but Jesus is a hope dealer. Jesus brings hope. There's a story I talked about a couple weeks ago in John chapter 8, where a woman has been caught in the act of adultery, sinning. She's dragged out, and the Pharisees, are pointing her faults out to her and to everyone around her, showing them what she's done wrong, what her mistakes are, what she should be punished for, and all of it. And Jesus does something different. Jesus gets down and he looks her in the eyes, writes in the sand, sends away the accusers. And instead of pointing out her faults, he says, who here condemns you? She says, nobody. And he says, then neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. You can find freedom. You can do better. Go live it. Jesus brought hope to every person he encountered. John 3, 17. 
says Jesus is the ultimate hope dealer. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to criticize the world, but to save the world through him. He came to this earth that he created, found us living opposite of the way he created us to live, making mistakes, hurting each other, worshiping everything but God. But he didn't come to point out our faults. He came to forgive them, to go to the cross on our behalf, to go in the ground for three days, to beat death, our deserved fate, so he could replace all of our faults, all of the things we do wrong, with hope instead. That's who Jesus is. Let's show the people the grace that Jesus has shown us. And let's give people the hope Jesus has given us. Bring people hope. Two ways you can live. John 10.10 lays them both out. It says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So you can use your words like the thief. You can steal joy. You can steal peace. You can steal purpose. You can steal intimacy. Or you can speak life. You can help people become the very best version of themselves. Tell people what you see in them. Point out the good things. Point out their potential. In your marriage, give hope. See the best in your spouse. You know what your job is as a spouse? Your job is to bring out the very best that person could possibly be. Where Elle and I, we do this thing every week where we, we talk through our calendars and expectations we have for each other. Call it a working date. One of the questions in that working date is always the same. Am I making you the very best version of yourself or am I making you the worst version of yourself? And the answer is hard sometimes. It just is. If you're married, you know, come on. Bring out the very best in who they could be. Make it your mission. They should be better because you're in their lives, always. That's our job. Do this for your friends. Make them the very best version of who they could be. See it. Call it out. Say it out loud. Make them uncomfortable sometimes because of how much you encourage them. People get a little uncomfortable with that. They're like, why are you so nice? And then they want more. Then they keep calling you to hang out. Speak life. Build them up. Make them the best version of themselves. You, you know what? They don't need to know the worst version of themselves. We're all familiar with that. Our enemy points it out to us every day. We get to be the voice of Jesus. Use your words to build people up, to bring them hope, to speak life over them. Remember the gospel is hope. Share the gospel with people in whatever you do and in whatever you say by speaking hope and life to the people around us. Let's use our words, as powerful as they are, to build people up, not to tear them down. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are, God. Father, for creating us to speak life. God, I thank you for creating us to give hope. Lord, I just ask that you would just use us for that, Lord. Retrain the language that we speak. Help us to delete this language of criticism from our, from our vocabulary, God. Help us to move away from it, Lord. Shield our eyes from the faults of others that we might just see what is good and call it out in them and build it up in them. Father, help us to come to people and help them grow and, and move forward and closer to who you are, but to do it through encouragement, not criticism. 
Father, help us just to speak the way you spoke, God. To be direct and to be and to, to, to speak truth and to speak speak life, but God to do it with grace and love and kindness and joy. Help us, Father God, just to be more like you in the way we use our words. We love you. We pray you. Pray, praise your holy name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.